Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Katherine Troyer, and joining me as always is Anthony Tresca. Hello there. devoted to thoughtful discussions about that fine line between the horrific and just the sort of horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. Yes, and today we are going to be discussing the book, Yay! The House Next Door, written by Anne Rivers Siddons from 1978. And so just to clarify, we are certainly not talking about the house at the end of the street, the uh, 2012 Jennifer Lawrence movie. We're definitely not talking about the house at the end of The Drive, a 2014 movie, and we're not even talking about the houses that are next door from 2002 or 2006 that are movies. We're talking about the house next door that's a book. Yay. And so this is because I begged and pleaded with Anthony to be able to have some podcast episodes on a sort of special basis that are looking at all of the really amazing horror fiction that exists out there, but that is oftentimes, if it's unless it's Stephen King, right. not really being discussed either critically or even more generally uh, in a, like reception yeah, capacity. Like an, whether that be an academic setting or even just like any type of news outlets or just journalists in general, these books do tend to kind of get overlooked. Because even really bad horror films, you can find an interview with the director and the cinematographer and the actors, because that's part of the press junket and things like that. But there's no such press junket that is, at least in the mainstream, that exists for books. Exactly. And so really the only thing you have is some books will have like the extras, right? And you'll get an interview. But that's that's not really very much. And for me, as a humanities interdisciplinary scholar, I think it is just as critical that we be talking about horror literature as we are the films. I mean, people read it. They do. Because these are people that are making livelihoods off of being horror fiction authors, again, besides Stephen King. So if people are reading it, we should be talking about it. Exactly. And we are very excited to be talking about The House Next Door because it's a fantastic book. Yes, it is. Uh, But before we get into the discussion of the book proper, let's uh, get a little bit of framework working. Excellent. So I asked Anthony what framework I should do because we had just done Suburban Gothic, Mm -hmm. um, and that's a perfect choice for the house next door but again we're trying to expose you all to as much theory and scholarship as possible so we decided uh anthony's suggestion to just pivot slightly and still look at the gothic but to just look at the idea of the southern gothic and a little bit of the female gothic Mm -hmm. not exactly a perfect fit no really the suburban gothic would be like the best so Um, just really you can cross apply everything we said about the suburban gothic yes which we talked about for our halloween episode yes And take that and take that idea of the Gothic, which again is this, it's, so the Gothic is what a lot of scholars talk about when they're not feeling comfortable talking about official horror. Yeah, when they want to be like, guys, I don't write 
horror. Horror is trashy. Yes. I write gothic works. And so this is where things, people like Faulkner and Edith Warden are going to fit because... Edgar Allan Poe. Yes, exactly. These are the people that it's okay to read, that it's okay to teach, that it's okay to study. But the gothic really is just this, it's very atmospheric. It's oftentimes going to be less bloody, certainly less bloody than, say, like, what's labeled as torture porn. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's going to be about creating that sort of mood, that atmosphere. You're going to be very focused on place. You're going to be very focused on the idea of the other. Um, There's often going to be issues of repression. There's going to be issues of family. There's secrets. And so in this way, any element of the Gothic really works for the house next door. In particular, though, as a text that is written by someone who is not primarily a horror writer, but is very much a Southern writer Mm -hmm. um, and sets her stories in in quirky little Southern towns, the Southern Gothic is a perfect framework for thinking about this, this text because the Southern Gothic is a really focused on this idea of like what makes the South unique and, and what makes it this rich and decaying, but also vibrant simultaneously culture. I mean, the South does have, for anyone who's lived or been to the South, you know that the South has its own type of atmosphere. Yes. Just like the Gothic has its own particular atmosphere, so does the Southern setting, just in general. Like, yes. the real the real South has that. Exactly. And, you know, the early sort of Gothic stuff that came out in, like, the 1700s and... 1617 and 1800s uh, in Europe, it was all in castles and things like that. We don't have castles that same way here in the United States, but we certainly have plantations Mm -hmm. and large southern estates and southern families where you realize that everyone in the town is or has at one time been related, right? And so a lot of it really carries over. But if you think of like what you would think of as a stereotypical southern summer day where it's hot and sticky and humid and, and lazy, but also like filled with all this life, That's pretty much the Southern Gothic. And so while the Southern Gothic may or may not be 100% of a perfect fit for every single aspect of the house next door, it it is a pretty interesting way to view this text. It is, because the neighborhood... So you could take the story out of of Georgia Mm -hmm. and put it somewhere else and have it be effective, but I don't know if you could take it out of the South. Because a lot of the the concepts that the novel presents, this idea of really knowing your neighbors, this idea of what hospitality is mm-hmm. and when it begins and where it ends, these are things that are kind of rooted in a Southern sensibility. And people's ability to feel like they can comment on everything. If you have, they can have these past these judgments yes. on you because there is a shared sense of cultural identity and what is right and wrong. The characters are clearly steeped in tradition, right? We have the characters who are coming from money, who are doing, you know, what their fathers say and their husbands say, but we also have characters that are very forward-thinking and that are very much a product of, of, you know, the 1970s sort of liberal thought processes regarding feminism and, and things like that. And so, again, we have this constant tug of war between the past and the present, between tradition and the future, and it just... There's something about that that is, while not uniquely Southern, is distinctly Southern. For a really good sort of discussion about um, just the American Gothic in general, I really recommend the Cambridge Companion to American Gothic that's been edited by Jeffrey Andrew Weinstock. And in it, there is an article on the Southern Gothic. There's also an article, and I I bring this up um, 
intentionally on uh, the female gothic. And the female gothic is going to be things like the yellow wallpaper, again, mm-hmm. Edith Warden, uh, Joyce Carol Oates. And what's interesting... All and, writers who are who don't classify themselves as uh, horror oh, writers. Who absolutely no, no, don't. No, no, no. And what's interesting, right, is that oftentimes in those um, texts and in texts that we label as female gothic, uh, there's a lot of concerns about the patriarchy and about the oppression of maternal instincts and maternal actions and that's one of the reasons why i think the house next door is so interesting it's kind of subverting all of those it is because our main characters are happily uh without children and they seem for all intents and purposes at least within the guise of their relationships to be pretty much equals yes it feels like a real partnership Mm -hmm. and so this one of the things that i think ann rivers siddons does so well is that she takes these tropes, the Southern Gothic, the female Gothic, but then she says, but how can we reimagine these two? So you said that there's a lot less out there on um, just horror fiction in general, but you do have some background for us. I do, because luckily some bigwigs within the horror, Stephen King, have deemed this book pretty good. And so once Stephen King says something is good, it gets a little bit more attention. Also... Uh, this uh, this book has been adapted into movies, so there's a little bit more information mm-hmm. there because they talked to Anne Rivers Siddons when the movies were coming out, and so there was a couple... This is kind of a little bit of a workaround because right. there's not a lot that was done initially about the book proper, but because of the reception later on and the reaction of other people that they had to the book, we have some stuff. Which is crazy because the book comes out in 1978 and the yeah. films don't come out until... The early 2000s. Yeah, so that's such a, an amazing period of time for us to not be talking about this text. Yeah. So, like you said, House Next Door, horror novel that came out in 1978. It was first published by Simon and & Schutz and became a New York Times best-selling novel. Yay. So, who is this Anne River Siddons? Well, she was born in Atlanta, Georgia, and was raised in Fairburn, Georgia, which is a smaller town in Georgia, attended college at Auburn University, and while she was at Auburn, she wrote a column for the student newspaper, the Auburn Plainsman, that favored integration. That was a... If you don't remember the this time period, which I wasn't around for it, I don't remember this yeah, time, but uh, that was a pretty hot take back then at... The university was not happy with it, and they attempted to suppress the column and then ultimately fired her from the newspaper. Wow. Uh, This column actually led to her getting national attention. Wow. Uh, And it led to her later on in her life becoming a senior editor for the Atlanta magazine. At the age of 30, she married Hayward Siddons. Uh, In 1971, she received an honorary degree in Doctor of Letters from prestigious university. So she has written quite a few very well-known books. Uh, Peachtree Road, which was set in Atlanta, was a best-selling novel described as a Southern novel for our generation. Uh, More than a million copies are in print. Some of her books have uh, been adapted into movies, like this one in particular. And she's also signed a three-book contract with Warner Brooks, and her novel Off Season was released in uh, 2008. Her novel Burnt Mountain made the best book of the year's list in 2011. But... Now to center on this book specifically, it's been... Because it's kind of an outlier oh, yeah. in oh, her, in oh, her yeah. canon, yes. Oh, it's most definitely an outlier. Uh, but that's okay, because this book has been received extremely well by reviewers, and has been frequently cited as the best Southern Gothic book of all time. Wow. So, like, 
not just like of the year right. or of the 70s. No, all time. And you know, I'm I might be willing to make that claim. I don't I feel like if I make that claim then like in 5 minutes I'll think about another text that I wanted to pick instead. But I'm pretty sure based on what I've read in of that would qualify as southern gothic literature, I'm willing to say yeah, yeah. I agree. Uh it's definitely Definitely in the running. Definitely oh, yeah. up there. Uh, so as I mentioned er, at the top, Stephen King, uh, in his nonfiction review of the horror medium, Dance Macabre listed The House Next Door as the one of the finest horror novels, not Southern, Gothic, finest overall horror novels of the 20th century, and provides a really long review of this in uh, the horror fiction section. And this uh, chapter, chapter 9 of that t- book, he's discussing 10 novels that are he claims are representative of the horror story as both literature and entertainment, a living part of the 20th century literature, and then their overall impact on the genre. So he talks about this text, and he also pairs it with another extremely famous book, uh, I imagine... You've probably heard of this one, Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, which is, I think that's a pretty apt comparison. Yeah, I think so. I think um, if I were to have a favorite, it would be The House Next Door. Um, I think that it's a little bit richer of a text, but it certainly makes sense to put these together because both of them are about quiet horror. Stephen King ultimately does, uh, he likes The Haunting of Hill House a little bit more. Okay, we can Uh, agree to disagree, I guess. I mean, but it fits his style. There's more Stephen King-y. You can see see he's drawing more influences from Shirley Jackson and The Haunting of Hill House than I think he would have ever taken from The House Next Door. House Next Door is too quiet for Stephen King. Yes, yes. Concerning this novel specifically, he expressed uh, reservations about the characters in here. He found uh, the lead character too vain and too class and money uh, aware for him to empathize with, which in this case he uh, felt muddled the character development. However, he did praise Sidden's handling of historical context needed to make the haunted house work. Uh, he says what he really found really interesting about most haunted house novels is that the house is already present, mm-hmm. it has a reputation, and the person entering it either knows from the start or learns mm-hmm. as the story continues. But the house is actively being built during this, and so you see the whole process of this and watch the events that unfold that lead to the reputation, that lead to the beginnings of nature and the character of the haunted house. Yes, and I think that this is one of the places where the novel really deviates from what we assume to be traditional Southern Gothic, right? Mm -hmm. Because usually it's like, see that plantation over there? And you're like, the one that looks haunted? And they're like, it is haunted, right? Like, but this is, you're right, and, and King's right, that this is the story of the creation of a house that will be haunted. And that's just... I don't know, there's something delightful about it and about that idea that we can be there from the genesis. From the beginning, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and a lot of people liked it. A lot of reviewers. Stephen King liked it. It was adapted into a 2006 made-for-television Lifetime movie. So you know you've hit it big when Lifetime <laughs> oh, has adapted gosh. you. I know. I for I admittedly haven't seen it. I, I don't know if I can have my experience possibly tainted <laughs> by a lifetime film. I mean, they're great to have on in the background, but that's kind of it. Well, if you ever want to get around to it, it's it will always be forever immortalized on lifetime. Yeah, nice. Like you can you can always just go around to that's it. It'll nice. be there for a lifetime. Ha ha ha. ha. <laughs> um yeah, so 
despite the fact that this book is by a best-selling author, that the book itself is a best-selling text, Mm -hmm. that Stephen King acknowledged it, that it was turned into a prestigious Lifetime original. With a 27% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So you know it's... You know it's top-notch. If you're in that 27%, oh boy, you had a good time. Yeah, you did. (laughs) Um, Despite all of that, I feel like this is a real sleeper text. One that, you know, if you ask people, like, what are your favorite horror texts of all times? They're not only not going to mention it, they probably haven't read it. They haven't heard of it. Even if they are big um, fans of of horror fiction. And I think that, honestly, for me, that's one of the reasons why it is such a good book is because it doesn't read as a, I'm a horror novelist, I write horror all day long, here's yet another version of the story I've been telling in one form or another for the last two decades. Mm -hmm. It reads as a, huh, I wonder what would happen if, and oh, look at that, I happen to have written a horror book. And and there's something refreshing about that. Mm -hmm. So we assume that you have read the book, dear listeners, because we told you to. Months ago. Months and months ago. But (laughs) um, just as a sort of like brief recap... Our main characters are, we have chosen to pronounce it as Colquitt, but she goes by Cole, Kennedy and her husband, Walter. Mm -hmm. And they are the people living next to the house next door Mm -hmm. in this small little community, uh, suburb neighborhood of of Atlanta. A rich kind of white affluent neighborhood in Atlanta. And so this is, if, if I were to have, I don't even want to say a quibble, because I, I don't think that we should not have texts about rich white people simply because they're rich and white, because they're people too, right? But but it is a very privileged perspective of the and world. And I think that's what Stephen King was kind of talking about when he was saying that Colquitt's uh, character is a bit uppity. Because she, she is. I mean, that's true. And and that's the life that she lives. And and I so I didn't have a problem with her because I felt like she was very authentic. Yeah. For her situation and her circumstances. Oh, exactly. I I also feel the same way. I didn't have a problem with it like King did because I I felt it was very kind of real. Yeah. It was like, yeah, of course this is how this person would behave. Of course they would be so concerned about money of course these are the issues Mm -hmm. that they would constantly be complaining about and thinking about because they're very privileged yes these are the issues that they have the luxury of having to worry about and yet and i don't know if it's because it was the character was written by a female author or a very deft author or just a whole bunch of other reasons but compared to other fiction set in this time period where it's about a woman she felt like she had a lot more agency. She had something to do with her life. It wasn't just she wasn't just a backstory, or she just there to support. She wasn't just the lens that the audience exactly. was seeing uh, this situation unfold through. She was an active participant in yes. the story. Yeah, like in Rosemary's Baby, a lot of the books, she's like, "Oh, I, I guess I should do something about this," or "I spent my day grocery shopping." And it's like, "Yeah, you did, but you also did other things." Like, like, let's talk about. The things that you and did. You had, I imagine you had thoughts along yes, the way. And exactly. You had, I think that is what is most interesting about this character is we really do hear what she has to say yes. all the time. Yes. And while Stephen King might think that comes across as complaining, I I don't think it is. I think it's no. just like 
we are getting to hear a different type of perspective, truly unfiltered all of the time. Yes. And that, I think, is necessary for this book to be successful. Oh, yeah. Because what I love about this book so much is the quietness of it. Mm -hmm. There are lots of um, books or films that are about home invasions or home possessions, and you're like, okay, you just saw Satan why are you still living here? And and there's like never an explanation and it just feels very unrealistic to what would happen. Mm-hmm. Even if it meant you had to be homeless, that seems a better option than say, you know, your family being possessed. Um, but this story was just so much more authentic of like, yeah, you're probably not going to move if you just suspect that the house next door is a little evil. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, yeah, you're probably going to do something, but it's going to take a while. I, yeah, and I think it's because of how uniquely structured the book is. It's sectioned off into three parts that follows the three different owners of the house next door. Yes. And so it really... And each one of these three parts also is structured into... has, like, a three-act structure. So it really is nine acts yes. that build this book. And so it doesn't feel the need... Or it doesn't, it doesn't have to show its hand too early yes. or be like, and here in... Part two is Satan. Yes. Bada bing, bada boom. Right. Are you happy? It's horror in your face. Yeah. I think, I think you're absolutely correct that because it's not a meandering text. It really is very structured. It just takes place over a very extended period of time. So we actually see that like in, in your life, horror is going to happen seasonally. Exactly. Just like everything else. Exactly. Cause I, and I think there is something to, it is a dense text. It is long, and it's taking place over, uh, I think it's just under two years that it's all taking place. And so it, it makes sense. Yeah, of course, first day, you're not going to you're not going to experience everything all at once. That would be a pretty bad and unscary, like, possession and haunting. Yeah, I mean, would. you just showed your hand all at once. What, what exactly. else you got? Like, you exactly. threw it all at me. And also that that doesn't in in any way mimic real life. No. One of the things that's so exciting about real life is that it's constantly changing. Your feelings about the exact same thing will change depending on the day. One day you wake up and you're like, I really like my house. It's nice. The next day you're like, ugh, it's so disgusting. Like, that's just what life is like. And your opinion changes on your neighbors. How you feel about what has happened to them. Exactly. And you see and I guess you really get to read and hear... uh, Colquitt's progression of yes. how she feels about uh, the original scandal that happens with the Haraldsons. Because when she f- first happened, she's like, oh, that's really embarrassing for them. Yes. It really sucks that that happened to such a, what I perceived as like a sweet, nice little family that would have been cute and fine yes. Yes. and simple. Yes. <clears throat> but as you go on, it's like, oh no, did they, did they really deserve that? Oh, no, they didn't deserve that. That was truly the house fighting against them and yes. it was this force otherworldly force that is in the house it's not a stagnant thing no Colquitt's mind changes and, and opinions and develop her, and evolve and her thoughts about what her responsibility is in all of this yes. changes as well and, and you alluded to that and I think that that's one of the things I really like is that I like that prologue where it says you know nobody likes this anymore ever since the the article came out and you're like what would it take for you to actually feel that you have a burning need to ostracize yourself from everyone because you feel that passionately about 
sharing the word. Mm -hmm. And then we get to see, right? And so it's that idea of like, where is that line where you realize no longer is it somebody else's issue? Um, and that that's a really and it's not just when the horror comes into their home no. as it does it's it's when they feel that they just have a responsibility like a moral imperative to do something about it after I guess after you watch the scandal like in, go people going insane and like straight up murder happen yes. at this house next door I mean you probably do feel some like sense that hey maybe I should do something about it, it makes logical sense why yes. one would lead uh would why one would come to these conclusions exactly and yet at the same time because there's never so we've talked before how in some films they or texts they sort of inappropriately show their hands such as hereditary where it forced us to see that there really was a supernatural component for sure uh-huh. and that it wasn't just mental illness right there is still a degree in the house next door where we don't fully we know that this house is tainted or broken or something but because of the way the novel exposes us to things we don't ever have that like and here is how why and and all and all those things definitely implied that the architect is the carrier of this but even then it's not it's not like part of some like ritual or you know it's not like he was this evil person he just put too much of himself into the home it's it's unknown to him yes and it's kind of unconfirmed to yes. us too. It's these characters certainly believe this. Yes. They are one hundred percent convinced. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that is one hundred percent true. Yes. Logically, it makes sense how they got here. Yes. And they have good justification for it. And there is that scene where we see that like the architect is going to be working on a new project, and we're supposed to have that sense of foreboding, right? So I think you know, I think if you were to ask it, and she would say that it's. It's definitely not in their heads, right? But just the fact of how, again, quietly the horror takes over um, just makes you really have to question, like, okay, so maybe all of us would be willing to say, hey, by the way, in my house next door, I actually saw, you know, someone rotate their head and vomit pea soup. But are we willing... I mean, maybe that's the line where we're like, I will for sure say something then. But... Do we say something if we just feel something's a little off? Do we say something if there's a death or abuse? or And so this is just, it raises so many, I think, questions about where do we draw the line in the horrors that we see that may or may not be supernatural. And I think that reflects back to the Southern Gothic yes. uh, pr- extremely well of like thinking there's like a kind of a culture within Southern communities of like, we know better. We know right. what is best for you. Right. So we will step in here and interfere on certain yes. issues. And also that small town feel, right? Yeah. Of everyone feeling like they are not just allowed to, but almost obligated to be involved in your business. Um, that just really, I think, makes this a complicated and very delightful story. Mm-hmm. I also have to say that I'm... I really like Cole and Walter's relationship. Oh, yeah. So one of the things that I thought was going to happen early on, because of the fact it's a Southern Gothic book, because of the fact that it's written in 1978, was I thought it was going to be a lot of, like, female hysteria. You know, where Walter's going to be like, now, dear, dear, maybe you should, you know, go play some more tennis. You know? Mm, Women. Yeah. Or the, like, (laughs) ah, it's just the womanly times, right? Like, I really thought that was going to happen, and I was prepared for that. 
but not, it doesn't. That's not what happens. This is a true story about like a partnership that grows stronger because of this. And that's the other thing I was worried about is a lot of times the, the relationship devolves. Yeah. Right. And yes, we have that moment where like, there's that almost weird, like threesome with the architect and, and then like there's the gun, but that's the house. That's right? the house. It's where, yeah. And, and I, and I think that's one of the things that makes this book stand out is that it's not following the standard and we've talked about how much we have a problem with this, the standard checklist of, do you have a woman who's hysterical? And check. Do you have a family that, you know, falls apart because that's the only thing that could happen? Check. Right? Like, it really does things different, including them being incredibly happy with their life exactly as it is and having no need to have children. Yeah. That is such a delightful inclusion because so much of horror is about either the fear of not being able to propagate or the fear of having children that are then evil. So much of it's about that. And it was just nice, again, to not have that, especially in a Southern Gothic text. Um, yeah, it does so much well and is so true to the actual time, how characters would be, and what's actually going on within that time period, which leads to one slight quibble. Yeah, I Might thought you were right getting word. to a but there, because you were like, it does so many great things. But, but it, but I mean, there are some elements in here that are, I mean, for when you read it in the context of now, they come off as not exactly the most appropriate, particularly when it comes to race and even a little bit uh, sexuality. Yes. So the only African-American characters are servants mm -hmm. and it's pointed out in the text that they are black. Mm -hmm. um, as though that's an important detail to offer, despite the fact that ethnicity is never once discussed with any of the other characters. It's not a book about race. No. And so to just kind of have that, like, I'm the black servant, right? Like, that just was not fantastic. Um, and and there's similar sort of issues where it's not blatant, it's not overt? No. Overtly. Over yes. It's not blatant, it's not overt, but it is present that this is just a, a sort of product of its times written by someone that, as you said, clearly believes in civil rights, mm -hmm. but clearly, I think, believes in, in feminist rights, but that also was writing in a world where that was not the reality, and it's going to shape things. And it's certainly, it, even if it may have been the reality in larger cities, it certainly was not the reality in small town Georgia. No, no. And it's certainly not in a white, affluent suburb mm -mm. of that time. So it's one of those things that, you know, there's always this question of like, do we include texts that have problematic depictions of things or that are written by problematic people or things like that? Um, and I think in this case, we just have to acknowledge that it would be almost impossible to completely have escaped it. Yeah. Uh, because it is very much a artifact of the 70s, the late 70s. And is reflecting real and very valid things that people were feeling at that time. Yes. Valid, not in the sense that they are correct, but valid in that that is actively what happened. That was their their authentic their truth. authentic truth. And so it would feel false if everyone in this uh, everyone in this small affluent yes. white uh, Georgia town was just like, yeah, we're super super cool yes. on every single race related issue because that's just not as unfortunate as it is. That's just not how it happens. I mean. In small towns today, that's still yes. that is still a huge problem. And 
it's the same with, you know, not every character is nice. Not every character is rational. I mean, that's just these characters are so realistic that they are going to be incredibly flawed. And honestly, if you just read the novel, it's not like you're going to be like, man, that was just a roaringly uh, inappropriately racially depicted text. It's just, it's there, it's right? There. And it's just worth mentioning as, like, Anthony and my one quibble that makes it so that we can't say that this is a perfect text just a, a well, I don't even know perfect. if it, I would say it's enough for me to say it's not like a near perfect text because the problems in it that if we're going to use that word to describe the racial relations that occur in the novel are problems of the larger society That's rather true. than problems with this individual book and how it's depicted in here. That's true. So I guess I quibble with society. Okay, I'm willing to do that. So, good book. Great book. Great book. Uh, a book that I think everyone should read, in part because it is such a great horror book, because it's not like most other horror books. Exactly. Recommend this book to your friends. Yes. Tell, please, do encourage them to read. Yeah. Horror, I mean... Yeah, I thought you were just going to stop with read. Do encourage <laughs> your friends to read. Period. Period. That's it. End of podcast. Yeah, that end. And if everyone read one book, then our lives would be complete. Yeah. Um, but especially read horror, <laughs> read, read horror. fiction. Yeah. Because it's just, there's so much great stuff. That was the next word yes. that, that I was going to, I put in there. <laughs> in fact, we are asking you to read uh, another book for us for our next special episode, which will come out on March 4. So again, you have some time to read it between now and then. Yeah, you have time to purchase the book procrastinate reading the book and then eventually getting around to reading it and then being very appreciative that we asked you to read it and then some of you may have already read it because i think that um paul tremblay uh head full of ghosts is a book that is getting it's gaining a lot of traction i mean there is a film adaptation currently in pre-production for it so if you haven't heard of it yet you'll probably be hearing more of it shortly yes and i I'm not sure how uh, a film is going to be able to adapt some of my favorite parts about the the book, but that, that can be part of our discussion for next time. So please join us for our next special issue on Paul Tremblay's 2015 book, A Head Full of Ghosts. And as always, thank you for joining us for this discussion on The House Next Door. We will catch you on the flip side. <laughs>